0: You're listening to a Monster Kid Podcast. <laughs> we interrupt this broadcast to bring you this special message. How's it going, eh? Today's show on the Monster Kid Podcast Network is a classic, hosted by two comedic geniuses who've watched way too much North American cinema from the 21st century, Mike Pisacano and Anthony Silio. Entitled Cinemarketing, this podcast chronicles the heroic adventures of two latter-day consumers of film and the marketing surrounding them, or, to use the correct 20th century terminology, losers. We hope you give it three thumbs up. Welcome to Cinemarketing. The trailers may have lied to you, but we won't. I am one of your hosts, Mike Pesicano, and joining me again uh, after a The rousing successful spot on the Space Jam episode last time, I have Nate Lamb of Before the Cyborgs. How's it going, everybody? Happy to be back.
1: Happy to be back. Yep.
0: Yep. Happy to have you back. And especially because for a movie that I know that both you and I very much uh, enjoy, some maybe to a bit of a more embarrassing extent than others. But we're here. We're giving you a five minute window. We don't carry a gun. We podcast. (laughs) That was a... A garbage introduction but the movie we're talking about is drive from 2011 directed by nicholas wending ruffin and this is a movie that has really only one big major thing in regards to marketing that we're going to end up talking about this is a very different movie than the type of stuff that we would normally cover it's not an animated movie or a blockbuster or something that was intentionally heavily marketed in any capacity or but It's something that uh, the the marketing around this movie has an interesting story to it, and I feel like it would be worthy of discussing it on this show. Yeah, for sure.
1: I think this being your first indie movie, too, the marketing is just different in terms of the way that you approach things. With indie marketing, obviously, because of the budget, but also because you're appealing to a different audience, I feel like, than you would with a giant blockbuster movie like Space Jam, like Godzilla, like the episodes you did before. So this is going to be an interesting one, I think.
0: Yeah, although there might be some people who might have felt that uh, the marketing did try to make it look like one of those types of movies and uh, might have been a little disappointed by that. But we'll get into that later. So the movie stars Ryan Gosling, Carey Mulligan, Brian Cranston, Oscar Isaac, Christina Hendricks, Ron Perlman and Albert Brooks. Fun fact, this is only four episodes in. This is the second Brian Cranston movie that we've done on this show uh, using Godzilla and he was in this all, I think, during the time of Breaking Bad. So he was just he was just killing it in the early 2010s. Yeah,
1: for sure. I mean, and this cast Brian Cranston obviously has a small role, but still prominent, I think. And then uh, there's other pieces like Carrie Mulligan is in this who I constantly confuse for Michelle Williams. But that's another thing.
0: Yeah, no, I, I've I've seen many of those uh, comparison images where it's like, which one's Carrie Mulligan, which one's Michelle Williams, and then there's like, like, oh, which one's Katy Perry, which one's Zoe Deschanel, and then also we've got yeah, some people who were not big names at the time, Oscar Isaac, who he kind of ha- he has a much smaller role in this, and now he's like one of the biggest actors, like one of the most highly in demand actors in Hollywood right now. He, he just took Twitter by storm last night with Jessica Chastain with that shoulder touch video or whatever. I, I only scrolled past it on Twitter, but I saw everybody talking about it. Oh, buddy, I'm so hyped
1: for... I, this is unrelated but the scene uh, from Marriage, the HBO series. I'm so hyped for that. And that he, that's what he's doing.
0: Yeah, I can't believe that we managed to get uh, a bunch of, like, millennial uh, Twitter users excited about an Ingmar Bergman remake. <laughs>
1: It's surprising, but it's like, it's one of those, it, it, I think it works better because it's HBO, too. It's part of the, no. and that's another marketing thing as well. I think if it was yeah. a movie, especially if it was a straight remake of that movie, like the original Swedish version of that movie is like five hours long. I don't know yeah, if it I would think have been thing, as well received for sure.
0: Yeah, I think they, they did make like a, a tr- I think they ha- there is a truncated theatrical version, but there is one, I'm not familiar uh, as much with like how like the different versions of the original scenes from a marriage there are and like how they broke that up. But uh, I know that there's, there's some debate over whether that's considered like a mini series or a movie. Uh, I know that anyway, aside from that, let's move on. So now production companies behind this movie, um, smaller, smaller divisions, um, film district, odd lot entertainment and bold films, which I believe at this point, film district is a subdivision of Sony pictures. Uh, and on the Blu-ray, there's a lot of Sony advertising and Sony products, but we'll, uh, I'll, I'll definitely get to that later when we talk about the the home media release. Tagline for the movie is called, it goes, uh, there are no clean getaways, which ironically enough is the exact same tagline for No Country for Old Men. I don't know if they were intentionally trying to uh, go after that or if it was just like, eh, it just kind of fits for the type of movie that it is. I mean, they're completely
1: different movies, though, too. So, like, that's weird. Like,
0: yeah, although yeah. There, there's, there's, a, there's a similar through line of, like, a, a botched robbery that, like, yeah, you know, a main character gets caught up in. But that's a, but that's about it. Uh, the movie was released on September 16th, 2011. Pretty much close to the 10 years anniversary release of this movie. And I feel like this yeah, is also uh, a, probably a, 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 the reason why I decided to pick it for now is because... It has that milestone and it's like, let's see how it holds up 10 years later. And it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 2011, where Nicholas Winding Refn won best director for uh, the movie. Uh, The movie didn't win the Palm d'Or that year. It was it ended up going to the Tree of Life, which, I mean, understandable, even if it's a movie that I don't really love that much. I'm like, I could certainly see that like, oh, yeah, that was the runaway winner. I mean, Terrence Malick at con is one of those things where it's like it, a
1: con audience kind of hits with that type of movie, whereas this movie, and we'll talk about it in regards to the marketing, is like you kind of go in from the first scene expecting one thing from Drive, and then it kind of morphs into a
0: different thing. It's also probably the only amount of can success that uh, Nicholas Winding had would ever have at this point. Uh, Especially because his next movie, Only God Forgives, infamously, uh, notoriously booed at its premiere at Cannes, which, uh, listen, the Cannes audience can be a little bit too brazen with their their booing. Uh, That's a movie that deserves it, though.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, reference since drive his career's been going downhill ever since it's like neon demon is a bit of a mess
0: like i some people love it i and but for me i'm not a huge fan yeah you know what i i i am on the uh i'm on the more positive side of neon demon i recognize how much of a mess it is but i kind of there's something there that i can jive with a little bit uh what i absolutely cannot defend is uh i tried watching the first episode of that Amazon series that he made uh, too old to die young. It might be the worst show I've ever seen. It's, it's like whatever people think are parodies of drive, like whenever, and whenever somebody's trying to like oversell, like, Oh, Ryan Gosling, just staring off in the distance. And it's just a bunch of neon colors with no story. And it's like, that's not what this movie is. Uh, That's exactly what too old to die young is though. And it's only the first episode. I'm like, I can't imagine watching 10 more of this.
1: It's one of those things where it's like, do you think based off the success of this movie and how stylistic it is in terms of the choices that he made, that he ends up doing the same version of this thing over and over and over again? It feels like like he keeps trying to recreate the magic, but it doesn't really work out for him.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely think that there is a part of him that uh, his career, I feel like, did have a drastic A shift stylistically after Drive because you look at his movies before this, like Bronson and Valhalla Rising, they didn't look like this. They weren't all like neon lit and like slow paced. I mean, Valhalla Mm -hmm. Rising, extremely slow paced. That's a movie I can't jive with. But those movies are a little less. uh, They're 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 visually told, but but there's there's like a, a. core character at the center of it like with bronson especially it it allows uh tom hardy to like really be like dynamic and creative and it's not like this the stoic protagonist that he's relying on post drive and it it's like you kind of feel that and
1: we'll talk about this too later but the influence that drive has on later things like you can point to like even like baby driver for example it kind of that same vibe in terms of like the driver and he doesn't really say much and there's like a love story but like baby driver being more commercial than yeah. i would say drive is but like it's similar type of like movie not stylistically per se but like in terms of like the setup and the characters and stuff
0: yeah i i think um my my uh i guess from our next episode i'll just uh i'll spoil that a little bit now Uh, My good friend Jack Patterson, who is my co-host on Random Movie Roulette, he will be joining me for uh, my next episode. I'll reveal uh, a hint for the next movie that we'll be doing together uh, at the end of this episode. But uh, he's he's made a compelling argument to me that Drive is like the template for defining the cinematic style of the 2010s like this kind of like almost 80s throwback uh neon lit kind of like cool suave like stoic like characters and like the and the world like that and uh I and and like at the soundtrack so I, and I'm like I think mm-hmm. that there is something there there is a, there's an argument to be made that that movie is kind of like the like like yeah that the indie boom the indie movie that like hit big uh, and then kind of defined the the, the landscape uh, for like the next couple of years to come. This movie was based on a 2005 novel by James Salis. I read maybe like the first two chapters of the book just to get a sense of how it how it reads. And um, the book is a little bit more non linear. There's more of a framing device. The first chapter starts at the Christina Hendricks scene in the hotel room. So there there is a lot of like. Uh, a lot of timeline shifting that goes on in the book. That um, I'm, thankfully they kind of streamlined it for the movie. I don't really know if a movie like this really works with like that much of a, a branching a uh, narrative like that. No, I think the way that it kind of hit a
1: compromise in terms of like it would reveal things sort of in flashback, but not a complete flashback. Like it would intertwine that through like crossfades and things like that in terms of the transitions to make that work. Whereas I, you're right. I think a linear in terms of for the cinema product cinematic product it just works better and i think execution Mm -hmm. wise it just hits well because you build those connections between characters well and uh it it allows you to tell the story visually too which is something that is very strong in this particular movie i think
0: yeah i think yeah i think that that's kind of this movie has a reputation for being like a film bros introduction to like artsy filmmaking and i feel like there is i feel like the reason why it, it it has that is because it's like it it does very much wear like a kind of like a film school student making his first movie trying to look cool uh so it's mm-hmm. like he has a lot of like long uninterrupted shots and like when to do inter- interesting things with like the lighting and stuff and none of this is bad stuff i think it's all to great effect in drive but again i think that the the effects that this movie ended up having on that style of filmmaking ends up making this movie look more hacky in comparison where it makes, I, I see a lot of like negative takes on like letterbox and stuff of like, Oh, it's just like a film school students first movie trying to look cool and stuff like that. I don't blame you if you think that, but I don't, I don't feel that way. Oh, I don't think so either.
1: I think it gets that reputation because it's been popularized outside of the indie canon in a way that it has attracted film bros in the same way that fight club is kind of the same way and like pulp fiction is kind of the same way that like started out as these like gritty kind of like indie movies but then slowly got a huge following and then like these are sort of your entry points into like quote-unquote cinema you know and drive is one of those movies and
0: we'll we'll, certainly talk about like yeah, the impact of that and its reputation there. But uh, for now, I want to uh, take a, a look at some of these posters that got released. and I've I fully recognized that uh, discussing posters on an audio based format is not the best uh, it's not the best uh, content. But so the way that I decided to go about this is that if uh, if you go to our Instagram page, if you go to Cinemarketing's Instagram, it's Cinemarketing Podcast on Instagram, and in the highlight section, on my on the stories for the for drive uh i will have i i of course have the slides of stuff that i post like beforehand of um movies of like you know marketing stuff and things that i find on instagram that are related to the movie as just like little fun lead-ins but then i have uh i will post the official posters for the movie that we're going to be talking about in sequence. So that way, uh, if you're listening on audio, you could follow along with us and you can know what we're talking about. So let's talk about not this one. This one that I posted is a picture of me recreating the poster of drive with the pink font. And I'm sitting in my car with the gloves and looking cool. Like this is the type, this is what I'm talking about. Like the, the film bros, like I, I'm cool and mature because I like this movie. And I'm like, I'm completely guilty of that. And uh, this is embarrassing evidence uh, of it right there. Wait, can we, before we continue in under the other photos can we get the
1: backstory behind the whole? Is this like a Halloween thing, or are you just trying to?
0: Oh, I, oh no! I just thought I, I was, I was just thought of like I just got my first car, and I was really into this movie, and I was, and I had these gloves, and I was like, you know what? What if I took a picture and I recreated the the posterior drive? And I thought, uh, but but as far as Halloween goes, do you you do not want to know how close I was to buying the hundred and fifty dollars scorpion jacket throughout the course of my life uh it's embarrassing the, the the amount of times i've i've basically like contemplated doing it but then thankfully like decided no nah, no nah, i'm i i don't think i need that okay question though do you think now being the age
1: that you are and 10 years removed from the movie being released almost do you think now owning the jacket is cringe or or like wearing it in public is cringe
0: Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I also think that, like, because at the time, I think that, like, the more, the more minimalist and low-key that, like, a piece of movie merchandise or memorabilia is, then I feel like the more you can get away with it. I feel like that jacket, though, now has become, like, such, like, a staple of, like, cringe film bros online that, like, yeah, there's nothing, (laughs) I mean... It's not, there wasn't anything cool about it even before. It's just like you being young and you're like, oh, I, I want the jacket. But like, no, yeah, it's a yeah. Wouldn't wouldn't want to do that now
1: because, buddy. It, I just look on eBay. It's selling for fifty bucks now, which is like one third of the price you were debating paying yeah, for ten years I, ago.
0: Yeah, I'm guess I'm, I guess the uh, the demand for it has dropped in the past decade. But yeah, so now let's look at these uh, official posters. Uh, so there's. The first one, the the official one, the one that I was recreating of Ryan Gosling sitting behind the wheel of a car. He's got his hand up to his face. He's like looking off into the distance, like watching as uh, his plans going through or something. I do like I would say that out of all of the official posters for this movie, I'd say that this is probably like the best one because like it's simple and it and it has like tiny little elements of like the style that it's going for it doesn't look as bland as a lot of the other ones do how do you feel about this one i agree i think having that uh
1: the the pink font for the film's title is important compared to like the second one that we'll look at in a bit here i think that it sort of captures the feel more of it and kind of focuses more on the driving aspect which again is an issue that some other people had with its delivery whether but again we'll discuss that later yeah i think this is definitely the best one of the official ones but i have seen some amazing like fan art ones that are way better than this one like that are yeah i think
0: oh yeah a lot of i think the the, the fan art ones definitely uh feed into like the the neon pink aesthetic art style of the movie a lot more than the official ones do um and yeah speaking of the pink font yeah because because i think that the pink font it's a, it's it's a little subdued it's it's a little more minimalist it's i i think that this is the one where it's like if you were confused and you thought that this was going to be an action movie i feel like this is the one that kind of hints off that it's like maybe that maybe this is a little bit more of like a a slower more quiet uh somber type of movie i feel like that uh, this one conveys that idea a little bit better right because of the second one you don't even I guess you have the car in the background, but
1: it's mostly just Gosling holding the, uh, the hammer. And then the font for the movie is like this very blocky font. That's like, yeah, this, yeah.
0: this one is the, this is the, the like official, like the DVD Blu-ray uh, cover. And it certainly has that feeling of like badly photoshopped DVD Blu-ray cover. Uh, I hate this. I hate, I hate that this is the version of the movie that I own also. Cause there is a really nice steel book. I'm going to find the uh, image of the steel book right now. And I'm, I'm going to put that in there right now. So that way we can talk about that a little later. But yeah, this one, I think one, this is the one that like will confuse you and like, oh, he's, he's a violent and he's going to go kill everybody. And it's like, there's, there's inklings of that in his character, but that's not what the whole movie is about. And putting that on the DVD and the Blu-ray is a little bit misleading. I think of all of them, I agree with you. This is easily the worst
1: one to me because of the way just the way that he's superimposed too. It feels like a bad Photoshop of uh, his positioning yeah, he's, in he's, the poster.
0: Yeah, yeah. he's not even centered. It, he's like off on yeah. the side and there's like a car. It's it's bad. It's a really bad uh, cover. Uh, but there's yeah. some that I like like uh, I think this one we'll, we'll get into like these are some of the more like Mondo made uh, or fan made type of things where it's like this one is like front and center we got like the the city skylight with the pink font i think the pink font is absolutely necessary um and 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 we'll go on to and the next one after that that i put in there also is um it's got like yeah it's, it's it looks like a little bit more of like a hand-drawn type of uh mm. of art style done and it, it's very pink and and stuff i, I yeah i think that all of the like variant posters like all mondos and like the fan-made stuff i think sells off the the vibe uh, and the look of the movie way better than, like, the studio does. I'm surprised that there's no
1: poster that's just exclusively, like, his back to the uh, the camera where he's in the scorpion jacket and it's just... Because there's so many of those posters,
0: right? You know, you know the type of where the make... Character yeah, characters. Back,
1: yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and, and I think, way. yeah. I also feel like the like the iconography of like the scorpion jacket is a thing that was not played on until like after the movie had come out and after like people had kind of like associated stuff with that. I don't think that they were thinking about that uh like prior to the release of the movie I'm going on, I'm on IMDb right now looking through and I see there's a lot of those types of posters that you just mentioned. I'll, I'll screenshot them and I'll add them to the story now. So that way they'll, they'll be up there by the time you're listening to this, but uh, yeah, these all, again, are kind of the more minimalist uh, fan made or like Mondo uh, type of uh, posters. But yeah, the, uh, one that's I, I just put up there right now, there's one more layer. This is the Steelbook uh, up here. Uh, and this one, again, if if I was owning it on home media, that's the that's the one I would have wanted. And it, it's also it has all the same features and everything that the uh, regular Blu-ray has. So it's not like um, missing out on that much by not having it other than just the cover. Does this have a Criterion release or anything like that? Do you know? Ah, mm. uh, no, I don't. No, it doesn't. And honestly, at this point, given Nicholas Winding Refn's, uh, uh, given his reputation, I don't really think Criterion's quick to gonna be jumping onto and wanting any of his stuff in there. It's not even like you know he's like the the worst, most problematic director. I just think it's like he's kind of like lost a lot of the goodwill that he built up, uh, in in like the earlier portions of his career. <laughs> Yeah.
1: I mean, that's fair, right? It's like, after this movie came out, everybody was so hyped for his next project and being like, oh, what's Refren going to do? How's he going to follow up this? And then he just, you know, he, like we mentioned earlier, just hits a, like, like a single, you know, it uh,
0: doesn't Homer at all. It's just like, nah.
1: kind of just strikes uh, out.
0: Yeah, the single, the one, and I would say it, yeah. a Neon Demon. It's like, alright, that's a base hit because Only God Forgives and and too old to die young are really like, those are just swings and misses. But again, like he takes big swings, which I think is respectable. And I think that that's why he still has like a devoted fan base. But, uh, Mm. I mean, as far as my own personal investment in him, I've, I've given up hope on him a long time ago. (laughs) No, I I, I think I'm in the same boat, buddy. All right. So now let's look at the first trailer, the official, uh, trailer for drive and let's talk about it. If I drive for you, you give me a time
1: and a place, I give you a five minute window. Anything happens in that five minutes and I'm yours, no matter what. I don't sit in while you're running it down. I don't carry a gun. I drive. So you just moved to LA?
0: No, I've been here for a while.
1: What do you do?
0: I drive for movies.
1: Isn't that dangerous? It's only part time. You put this kid behind the wheel, there's nothing he can't do. Kid, I want you to meet Mr. Bernie Rose. My hands are a little dirty. So am I. My husband is coming home. Where is he? He's in prison.
0: There's some guys that want me to do a job for him and I'm not gonna do
1: it. What is that you got there? One of those men gave you that? most what's the job? your money, his debt's paid. You never go near his family again. (gasps) Did you have any idea there'd be a second car? He said there would be another car to hold us up. Whose money do I have? I'm gonna tell you something. Anybody finds out we're both dead. That's why this driver's gotta go, Bernie. He's gotta go.
0: Dreams you have or plans for your future. I think you're gonna to have to put that on hold for the rest of your life. You're gonna be looking over your shoulder. All right. Yep. So this is the iconic trailer for Drive. Uh, still using the ugly blocky white text that I hate and uh, should not have been uh, used for the official marketing.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think what and the, it doesn't lean into speaking to that uh, same kind of thing it doesn't lean into its style enough I feel like it tries to make it like the neon uh like retro style doesn't lean into that enough in this trailer to sell it I think it in terms of the way that it's both cut I think in trying to tell you like the story like one of those like previously on whatever kind of it it cut like one of those Mm -hmm. trailers instead and it's I find that almost aggravating because it sells the movie in a way that that it's not what the movie is and kind of gives away large portions of movies too
0: yeah it's definitely one of the movies that it spells out what the story is like beat by beat he's a driver he's a getaway driver for criminals he's uh crushing on carrie mulligan and her husband's coming back from jail her husband has this one last job he needs to do he tries to help him It goes wrong. They double cross him and then he's on the run and he's got to, you know, uh, protect Carrie Mulligan and her kid from these gangsters. And every second of action or or violence in the movie is in this trailer. The car chase after the robbery goes wrong. The uh, the hotel shootout confronting Ron Perlman at the end of the movie. Yeah, the elevator, all that stuff is in the trailer. And I feel like that's where I would be. If I was a movie goer, I would be most disappointed. Not that the movie sold an action movie. And it was, I would be more disappointed that like, and any ounce of action, they showed all of it in the trailer. And I think that
1: robbing you of that elevator scene, which is probably the most iconic scene, would you say from the movie, other than the opening scene, the, the getaway yeah. opening scene uh, is one of those things that kind of just takes away from your experience. If you watch the trailer before going to the movie,
0: no, yeah, because that, yeah, because like that excitement, like I, I would get showing the kiss in the trailer, but like the, the uh, build up of like him fighting the guy in the elevator, yeah. that's given away in the trailer too, and yeah. yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's like, because honestly, I didn't see this movie when it came out, uh, because, and we'll get into more of our like personal history a little later on, but yeah, I think that because it, aside from like. Some of the music cues that this trailer uses, it uses the uh, "Oh My Love" uh, track from like the movie uh, in, in as like the ending of it. But like aside from that, I think "Tick of the Clock" is in it in in the in the first uh, half of that trailer. And aside from like the music cues and stuff like that, it just did honestly. It did kind of look like a, just a generic action movie, and I was like, all right, I don't really need to see this yet. And it wasn't until like you know year-end bests and critics were giving it the praises that i decided to check it out but yeah i can i can see why someone was uh was either duped into seeing this movie on the guise of it thinking it was an action movie and also someone who stayed away because that's what they thought it was yeah i think if you're trying to sell an
1: indie movie uh especially to nerds i feel like having that unique sense of style is is important or else like you said, it's just another one of these, these action movies where it's like you know Taken is at least one of these kind of things where it's like oh guy goes around and kills a bunch of people or like you know anything with like Bruce Willis or whatever kind of deal where it's like that kind of movie and obviously Drive is not that kind of movie.
0: But yeah, anyway, let's move on to uh, another important selling aspect of this movie is the soundtrack. Uh, again, not as uh highly profitable as the space jam soundtrack from last week. Didn't I'm not seeing any platinums for this one, but the soundtrack is kind of an iconic staple of like, like two 2010s movie soundtracks. You got night call by Kavinsky and you got Tech of the clock by chromatics. And of course uh, a real hero by college, kind of the theme song of this movie. Uh, that was the song that I used as the hint at the end of uh, the last episode to foreshadow that we were doing drive, uh, and all of these songs have like a significant presence in the movie and a, a like a thematic relevance, and they are very tightly intertwined with the scenes that they're connected with. I mean,
1: the soundtrack to Drive is is another interesting thing because we talk. You talk about how you came to discover this movie, and I guess we'll touch on this more in depth later. Mm-hmm. But like how I came to know this movie is because Childish Gambino uh, sampled the uh, Night Call song for his mixtape Royalty the year after, so 2012. generated name, I'm a showgun wu generate generator name Watch him smoke one, talk a lot of shit But none of them will approach him Gambino got first position, the game is ballet So graceful, drive, you don't need a ballet So angel, fly as I wanna be Mercy, somebody show these niggas Can't hurt me Whoa! I think the soundtrack is one of the again similar to Space Jam. One of the coolest parts of the movie. Like this is a significantly better movie than Space Jam, 100%. But even still, the soundtrack for Drive is pretty fucking awesome. I would say. And, like, even the way that, like I mentioned earlier, like, it's the Kavinsky's column has been sampled by Childish Gambino, presumably as a result of Drive, bringing it to higher levels of uh, notoriety. And then, like, even, like, a real hero being co- covered by Alt-J a couple years back as well. And uh, I think, who who did a cover of... Some London bass band did a cover of Nightcall too, and it's always sampled all the time in a bunch of stuff because that bass line is unreal for Nightcall, right?
0: No, yeah, and especially yeah, the way that it drops into the movie, like it's the the opening credits song where it's like after we've got the cold open of the 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 chase and how everything he plans out, and then it's like you're you're into the movie now. We're gonna we, the the song drops, the title comes up, the the credits. And it's like, yeah, this is this is the movie you're in for. And it's like it does a great job of setting that tone.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I noticed, actually, uh, and this might not this might just be something that I I didn't notice before, is it front loads the credits. Like it plays Night Call over opening credits while they're setting up the, uh, the opening heist. Whereas nowadays in movies, they don't do that. They save all the credits to the end. Right. Like, classic movies used to do the whole bit where they would do the credits at the start, and Drive does this as well. But it's not something you see as much anymore.
0: Yeah, opening credit sequences are few and far between, and it's like, when you get them, they're a real treat. Uh, also, in 2011, probably the best uh, uses of an opening credit sequence was uh, David Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, where it's like, yeah, this is the, the type of like, you know, opening credit sequences that we've But yeah, whenever you get one that that does it, it's, uh, it's a treat. But uh, let's let's leave it off right now. We'll cut to a little bit of a short break. Again, there's not a lot of like, you know, uh, other outside media that uh, was used for this movie to to, you know, watch. But I do have a, a very funny interview clip that I found of uh, William Friedkin and Robert Nicholas Winning Ruffin. Uh, having a little discussion about their movies and uh, the reaction that Freakin has to Refin is 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 pretty insane. It's a pretty hilarious uh, uh, encounter. Uh, a little, And uh, I figured that would be a funny thing. It's about Only God Forgives but uh, Drive gets mentioned a lot and I feel like it would be a funny thing to put in here. I'll put it that, maybe one of the other TV spots and then we'll be right back.
1: Oh, I'm like you. I have no regrets about Only God Forgives. I think it's a masterpiece and it is. I just didn't make it very expensive. Is there a doctor in the house? We we need to get a medic in here. Is there is there a doctor around? <laughs> I just didn't make. You, I, if you I, think that's a masterpiece, inex- what is Citizen Kane? It's great, but it's very. In, it was an inexpensive movie, so financially. Who gives a shit? And I have just two questions left. When you were mentioning, I have a third. Where is there a medic? For this man, when you were mentioning, did you hear the ambulance pull up? Yes. Okay. When you were mentioning 2001, it says in Kane you forgot to add drive. We'll let that slip. We won't know about drive for another thirty years. Thirty seconds. Wh- whether it lives or dies. I'm talking about films. Uh, 2001 was made in 1968. I made this film about four years ago, so it's about four time. years is a zip. It's not even a blip. It's not a, a pimple on, on the asshole of humanity for years. But 2001 was made in 1968 and holds up like gangbusters. It's better than all this other similar crap. And Citizen my Kane. Is, my Citizen Kane, 19- was we made in 1941. We know that. My and it lives. What do you do? I drive. Critics are raving. Drive is brilliant, powerful, a masterpiece. Rolling Stone gives Drive
0: four stars. It's the coolest film of the year. Drive, rated R, now playing. And we're back to talk about Drive. Uh, we watched the clip of uh, Friedkin uh, during the break. And uh, <laughs> anything you want to say about it? Because uh, I thought that was a, a pretty humorous uh, finding on my part. <laughs> I
1: mean, I just want to know when that ambulance is coming. Yeah, he keeps asking for it. Where is it? <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, yeah no. honestly, like, yeah, uh, between, listen, lo- yeah, l- you love freaking, but it's like freaking with Refid. It's like, wow, a, a, a meeting of, of two fucking pretentious assholes. It's like, it's glorious, but it is like these guys, two people who couldn't be more up their own asses, like having a, a debate with each other. Oh, it's, it's actually, I'm so glad you
1: brought that to my attention. It's such a glorious question. Like, it's... Uh.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about Drive. So we talked about the opening uh, chase scene, how it sets up sets up this driver's world, it sets up his routine, and how efficient and and quick he is, and how capable he is at his job. And I feel like there's a lot of like really, really cool things in this opening chase scene that, like, you know, from... Not really like an action sequence, but like of attention building, like the entire scene takes place inside the perspective of the car and all the the different types of maneuvers that he uses. Like stuff that I don't really see in other action movies, like where he hides behind a big truck in an alleyway and turns the lights off. That's like stuff that you don't really see in action movies during like chase
1: scenes. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's more of like yes, there's a skill to driving, obviously, and he's a skilled driver, but there's also a methodical planning to it, right? So, like, the whole thing culminates in him timing it up with the end of the basketball game so that he can make his grand yeah. escape, right? Like, when a lot of these times, like, you you talk about chasing, you think about just purely just dudes who can drive extremely well, they do these crazy flips and shit, or they, like, have, like, these supercars with, like, Nitro and shit yeah, or, like that, you know?
0: Or like, yeah, like, like uh, or like, like kind of like Baby Driver or, uh, yeah. or like we say like the Fast and Furious movie or something like that, where like, yeah. you know, they're, they're jumping, jumping off cliffs and stuff and like that, stuff that's like not realistic, but like this does show like a very tangible real world maneuver, uh, maneuverability of like, uh, like, you know, navigating the city, like keeping a low profile and then like, yeah, just very like swiftly, timing it to the end of the game so you just like like you know fade off into the distance
1: it's one of the best scenes in the movie for sure this and the elevator scene are the ones that i feel like most people take away
0: yeah no yeah so then uh we're introduced that he not only is he a getaway driver but he also has a couple of other part-time jobs he is a stunt driver for a bunch of uh, Hollywood movies. And uh, he also works as a mechanic at uh, Brian Cranston's uh, garage. And so he, so a lot, a lot of uh, different car mechanic uh, car driving related uh, professions for this character. So then he meets Carrie Mulligan, his, his uh, apartment neighbor, her and her son. And he like, you know, helps them do things. He, like you know he, he drives them around and like you know picks up groceries for them and stuff like that and then uh she reveals that her husband Oscar Isaac is being released from prison and it's like oh this 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 happy idealized life that we could have had together is no longer Oscar Isaac comes home and I think that there's a lot of clever things that it does like subverting your expectations um not only with the kind of movie that this is but like with how the characters are because like you expect that like when Oscar Isaac gets out of prison and he's just going to be like this kind of like irredeemable douchebag that you're like, you know what? He should kill you and he should be with Carrie Mulligan. But it's, and, and they kind of set that up a little bit, like after the party when he like confronts driver and he's like, Hey, yeah yeah, I I hear you're helping out a lot, huh? Is that what you're doing? You're helping out. And it's like, you think that he's going to be like that type of confrontational antagonistic character towards him, but it it then subverts your expectation about who that character is later on.
1: Yeah. And, uh, I think a lot of that comes down to the visual language that Refn pulls off. Too, there's actually a great uh, "Every Frame a Painting" video about this movie. Rest in peace to Every Frame. of
0: uh, uh, yeah. Uh, the amount of video essays that this movie has spawned, like it, it yeah. would honestly, it would be, it would be futile to try to highlight any uh, of them in this. But if there is, if there is one, it is the the "Every Frame a Painting" uh, one where it talks about like the four quadrant uh cinematic language that the movie uses and i I agree with you on in like how it
1: builds those things and like the beauty of this is that not everybody is as they appear right is the like a driver when you get to know him like obviously he does the getaway driving but then you sort of see him in a completely different light when he becomes violent Mm -hmm. as well so like there's two sides of the coin there then you have, yeah. you know, Brian Cranston's character, who's like this good guy, kind of guy who's trying to help people out, helps out this kid. But then he's got a bit of a dark side as well. And yeah, Albert he's, Brooks. yeah, like he's involved
0: yeah. in it's not really like yeah. him, but like he's involved with people who are like, you know, he's involved in some shady shit. Yeah. And and yeah. And, and like you said, like Albert Brooks as like the the kind of the mafioso villain where it's like. He, he doesn't come across like he's he's the kind of guy where it's like he doesn't want to have to get his hands dirty. But he's like, oh, if it comes to it, it's like that's he just taking care of business. Like, that's how he sees it. Like,
1: I am just going to say Albert Brooks, probably the, the best part acting wise in the movie, other than Gosling, maybe.
0: No, yeah. And it's especially a, a surprising turn for Albert Brooks, because he, he's kind of one of those character actors, like a comedic actor who you, like, you never really saw in that kind of light before and seeing him in this kind of like menacing villain role i think it was it was surprising for a lot of people at the time and i think that they're of like the acting highlights uh, he was the one who would get uh singled out the most um even though i i and i do feel like like he has like a great presence in the movie uh, although i do feel like uh in the years since judging on an individual basis i honestly i think cranston is kind of like the standout uh, mvp acting wise um even though i would say that he's kind of playing a Brian Cranston-type character, but he fits so well in this world, and he, I would say, has... As far as, like, screen time and, like, lines and stuff, he probably has, like, a good majority of them more, because it's, like, there's a lot of scenes where, like, he's with Gosling, and he's doing most of the talking. He's, like, carrying the scene when Gosling is kind of, like, being reserved. For sure, for yeah.
1: sure. I think, yeah, Cranston, during this period, like you said, was just on a hot streak, right? So it's, yeah. like, he... Even in Godzilla, you could argue he was the best part of Godzilla, from an acting uh, yeah. perspective. Yeah, yeah. I think
0: we, I think we did discuss yeah. that on the uh, on that episode when we talked about yeah, it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And you know, he's also another one where it's like his uh, post Breaking Bad career trajectory, as far as like being in in films, it's like he's almost kind of disappeared. It's like, where is Bryan Cranston? Where are the the leading man performances from Bryan Cranston? Because it's like we got the upside. There was some like Showtime series, I guess he was on, but like, I don't really, yeah. like, it feels like Brian Cranston just
1: disappeared. He should, you know, he was on,
0: he was on the Power Rangers movie, wasn't he? Oh yeah. I mean, I didn't see that movie. I, I think I remember hearing that he was in it, but like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't end up seeing that. I think it just boils down to like, he's so iconic as, uh, as Walter White that like, I don't think yeah. that he, I don't think people can take him as like a different character anymore. Yeah,
1: even Gossing, he plays a lot of these stoic guys, and I don't know if that's a result of Drive or because he was doing that previously, like, in terms of timeline. Honestly, I don't remember, but he does a lot of this type of character as well.
0: Yeah, no, I feel like this movie, not only just, like, a turning point for, like, the career of Nicholas Winding Refn, But I think that this movie was like a turning point for Ryan Gosling in his career, because if you're looking at like a lot of the movies that he was in before Drive, he was kind of like the romantic lead, like a very conventionally good looking romantic lead character. He was in The Notebook and in movies like All Good Things. And there was the blue, 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 Valentine. Uh, He got an Oscar nomination for Half Nelson. But like, I feel like his identity as an actor, as we know him now, didn't really get solidified until this movie in 2011 comes around and he is he's he's got a banner year in 2011 because he was in Crazy Stupid Love, which is, again, kind of a, a very typical Ryan Gosling role pre drive where he's like the conventionally handsome romantic lead character. And he's playing off of Steve Carell, who's like very obviously not. And then he was in the Ides of March, uh, the George Clooney movie. It's kind of like a political thriller and he's the lead of that. but it's not. But it, it again, the movie didn't really go anywhere. And then we've got Drive, which comes out and kind of like redefines his image, because then after that, he's in other reference movies. He's in uh, Only God Forgives, which, again, I feel like that movie, he's very clearly trying to like recapture uh, that same type of character in the same movie. And I feel like reference trying to do the same thing, too. Uh, it doesn't really work that much. But then Gosselin goes off and he tries to direct his own movie, uh, Lost River, which uh, I have not seen, but on all accounts is apparently just like uh, feels like a student film trying to ape Nicholas Winding Refn, which I feel like is a thing that it, it very heavily influenced his uh, his career and his style and like his ambitions after that. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, if you could speak to that. I have not, but
1: it, it, it's something that's always been on my list. I think, in terms of his approach, he has sort of found out this way of being this stoic guy. Like he, his even in his rom com roles, he's like, has this like very dry, uh, quick wit where it's like he doesn't need the big gags to sell his character. Like that's he through this movie, I think he found his own way of carrying himself on screen in a lot of his roles even in drastically different types of roles like La La Land for example he even that he's not the most expressive guy you know
0: yeah I feel like his his best performances I think are when he's able to combine the conventionally attractive handsome leading man who's like a charming charismatic uh leading presence who's got a bit of a comedic edge to it and with like you know a kind of like a stoic reserve thing like i think la la land is great at that the nice guys which is just him being like a completely ridiculous comedic uh relief character but he's he's really great in that movie uh that's a side to a movie that is like it's, it should have done what Drive did for his career. Like, that should have been, like, a new chapter of his career. Just being, like, kind of bumbling, like, like leading guys who are, like, you know, get who get beat up and get, like, you know, and just, like, have to, like, fumble their way through it.
1: Mm, obviously, like, Blade Runner. Same kind of neon aesthetic.
0: Yeah, I feel like, yeah, I feel like, yeah, less Blade Runner and First Man, are I feel like, are very much, like, him, like, you know, playing into, like, the stoic, reserved uh, leading man for so I guess sci- sci-fi wouldn't be the word for First Man, but like, you know, science-based space, like, you know, like, you know, stuff like that. And yeah, yeah that First Man was like the last movie that he was in. I'm looking at his IMDb. He's got a couple of upcoming projects. He's in a movie called uh, The Gray Man, set for 2022, uh, directed by uh, everyone's favorites, the Russo brothers, in what I can imagine is going to be another Netflix generic action movie because that's oh, it is a what Net, they it is
1: a Netflix movie. It is apparently the most expensive Netflix movie ever made.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, no, and I, and I guarantee that when it comes out, it's gonna end up being like the Netflix is like these are the biggest numbers that any movie has ever had every time one of their movies that you're like that existed, and how many millions of people watch this? I'd never heard of this before. Like, they spend yeah, so much
1: money you know, on these things, and they just don't deliver It's It's ridiculous. Yeah, and then like, it's, anyway, that's besides yeah, the point.
0: But yeah, and then he's also slated... I think he's also set to be the Wolfman in what is the, I guess, the new version of, like, the Dark Universe. But it's oh, like...
1: no, rest in peace, Dark Universe. The, dark yeah, universe. No.
0: Yeah, yeah, I feel like it's not, like... Dark Universe, like, it's not connected to that Tom Cruise mummy movie, but I feel like that kind of, like, the soft reboot of the Universal Monster series, like, the way that the Invisible Man was, I feel like they're doing the same yeah. thing for the Wolfman, and Gosling is set uh, to star, and it's directed by Lee Whannell, so it's, like, I guess that's the new direction that the Universal Monsters, or the Dark Universe, is uh, setting up for.
1: Yeah. Basically just to erase that terrible mummy movie, eh?
0: Yeah. And then it's, like, I was I was always thinking about the dark universe. I was like, what was what were they leading up to? Was it was was the Avengers of the dark universe? Was it going to be the monster mash? Were they going to make the monster mash movie? Like, I I honestly I I would pay to see that. Uh, I don't really care about the origins of Dracula, but like, you know, give me the monster mash. Just make it fucking lovers rock, but with the universal monsters and I'll be there.
1: Oh, dude, I would be so hyped for that. Like, even just, like, the the fucking trailer for the Dark Universe when they first announced it, and then those stills, it was like, I was super on board. Like, give me this, let's go. And then they were just like, okay, Tom Cruise comes out and bombs, and then just like, okay.
0: Yeah, I think the the yeah, they shouldn't have tried to make it like an action series. Just make them straight up horror movies. That's why the Invisible Man movie worked. Uh, I don't really yeah. know how you're going to cross those over anymore. But like if you want to keep them relevant, that's probably the only way to do it. Anyway, yeah, uh, a side tangent about the dark universe. Let's get back to this movie. Um, I think this is the point where I think I would like to talk about like the big controversy. The reason why the marketing of this movie is significant. Um, I think we can uh, jump into that right now so shortly after the release of drive uh michigan resident sarah deming and her lawyer martin h leaf who apparently they're like they saw the movie together like they were friends they saw the movie together and they were so disappointed that they attempted to sue the filmmakers and distributors claiming that its trailer was misleading and it was promoted the movie as being like a fast and furious style action movie and then the movie wasn't anything like that and i'm like just starting on that basis it's like i saw a movie with my friend he's a lawyer and so me and him we decided like you know what let's let's take down this movie it's like it sounds like a thing it sounds like you know you're you're on a drunken afternoon and you're like yelling at your friend like you know what we should just we should sue them and then like but then these people actually like they actually went through with it like they actually tried to get it into effect I don't know. I want to ask you, did you know about this before uh, doing research for this episode? (laughs) I did not know about this. Maybe I read
1: it before 10 years ago, but it's been so long that I didn't. But honestly, reading through it, it sounds like a it's always sunny episode, like straight up. I thought
0: that this (laughs) is no way. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I remember hearing about this like around the time that the movie had come out. And it was a thing that like I had always just remembered as being like kind of a punchline where it's like, oh, yeah, that woman tried to sue Drive because she thought it was a Fast and Furious movie. And I'd be like, aha, uh-huh, you know what I'm going to do? Next time a Fast and Furious movie comes out, I'm going to sue them and say that it wasn't anything like Drive and then see where that gets me. But like stuff like that. But it's like, but it, actually looking at it, I'm like, I thought it just ended there. I thought it was just like she tried to sue the movie and then it didn't work. I thought that was the end of it. I didn't know how much further this story ended up going. So then apparently after not getting anywhere with that claim, because it's like, You can't just sue a movie because you didn't like it. Like, even if you thought it was misleading, it's like there's no intentional mismarketing uh, that was going on in there Like because they brought that defense to court. And then the lawyer pointed out, it's like, all right, this trailer shows that this movie is about a driver who gets involved with, like, you know, a, a, a con job gone wrong, and then he has to fight off some mobsters. That's what the movie's about. All of the scenes that are in the trailer are in the movie. You have no basis for saying that it was mismarketed. Um, and then, so then apparently, she then added to her claim that the movie contained, quote, extreme gratuitous dehumanizing racism directed at members of the Jewish faith and thereby promoted criminal violence against members of the Jewish faith. And this is on the basis that the two villains of the movie, Ron Perlman and Albert Brooks, are Jewish actors and they're playing Jewish characters and they are the lead villains of the movie. We will get into later on of why that is like a completely misguided uh, attempt at just trying to save your case when you have none, but also just how like despicable it is to like try to bring that into it.
1: It's ridiculous, man. I can't even put into words why you would double down after like after you already got dunked on for putting in this lawsuit in the first place, why would you double down and then say that it's anti-Semitic? Like, especially when you can think about the other movies that could lean way more heavily into that field if somebody wanted to go that route and didn't get sued. For those, for those mm-hmm. grounds, like, you know, like Tarantino mm-hmm. movies who are notorious for dropping N-bombs and creating controversies, you know?
0: Yeah, and and there certainly is, like, you know, there is a, uh, there's certainly, like, an awareness of, like, especially nowadays of, like, sensitivity towards, like, portrayals of different marginalized groups and stuff like that. But even under those bases, even under those guys, the movie itself is very aware of, like, these two characters and their heritage and like their placement within this mafia family, because the rotten Proman character has a moment in the movie where he specifically brings up that even within their own mafia family, he is discriminated against specifically because of his Jewish heritage. And so I feel like the movie is definitely aware of, of that and like trying to say something about it. And it's not using it in a way that is like antagonistic towards, you know, people in any way, it's a way of humanizing the villains of like, Dealing with like this type of discrimination, even within their own mafia family.
1: Yeah, for sure. I and I think the scene you're referring to is like the one where Rob Proman's like every time I go in there, I'm like he says like I'm 59 years old, and they still call me kid and pinch my cheeks and and shit like that.
0: Yeah. Um. And so then back to the court case. So after she then brought this claim to the judge. The judge ended up dismissing that charge, claiming, yeah, the movie, that the trailer was not misleading, and that the movie didn't promote any instances of like anti-Semitism. Um, and and the 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 argument that like even if it did, like even if it was hateful in its representation of Jewish people, it's not really a grounds for a lawsuit because there are like First Amendment rights uh protects portrayals of that. Even, like, yeah, as disgusting as that may be, like, in instances in which something would actually be, like, really harmful, it's not—it's a thing that you can't—legally, you can't really do anything about it. Like, there is a a protection of of First Amendment freedom of speech to depict whatever. And so then she tried to claim that the judge himself, by dismissing that claim, he himself was an anti-Semite and— attempted to have him be removed from the case. Um, That ended up going nowhere as well. Um, And then I think, yeah, March of 2012 is when this case was dismissed. We thought it was over at this point. And then turns out in five years later, in 2017, uh, Martin Leaf, who was like the 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 lawyer in this instance, not the woman, I think she had bowed out at this point, uh, but Martin Leaf, the, the lawyer, had then tried to relitigate this case, tried to like bring it back again, and, repre- and and attempted to represent himself in this case. And in this instance, the defendants' list had grown so exponentially to include Nicholas Winding Refn, Albert Brooks, Sony Pictures, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Google, and AMC. Uh, all as like the, def- the the defendant side. I'm like, one, I would kill. To be a fly on the wall in this courtroom uh, if it ever actually ended up getting to that point, because at the minute that you invoke like not only Albert Brooks, like you have like Netflix, Amazon, Google. It's like you really think that you some small time lawyer from Michigan is going to be able to take on all of these massive corporations again. Like, why would you after failing the
1: first time, why would you double down and then triple down? <laughs> Uh, just get yeah you know,
0: cut your losses and walk away yeah and this one was this attempt was almost immediately dismissed not only on the claims of just like this claim is illegitimate but on the grounds that this this case had already been adjudicated like they had already attempted and failed so on that basis alone you can't go any further with it it's certainly like someone just had a personal vendetta against a movie they didn't like and just tried to like see it through to the end. And you know what? Good on them for like the the fervent uh, uh pursuit of trying to, you know, win this case. But like, you know, just making yourself look stupid in the process. So it's like, yeah, just, just know when to quit. But that's the moral of the oh, story f- here.
1: Yeah. It's so fucking
0: yeah. stupid. Honestly, no, even though, yeah, it's, it's stupid, but it's like, you know what I I am kind of grateful that a story like this exists because uh you know it, I just one it's a reason to do this show specifically uh but it's yeah. also it's it's uh, you know it's it's just funny to 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 watch people just kind of like fail on such a ridiculous degree. Okay. Let's move on to the box office uh results for this movie. The movie on its opening weekend came in at number 3. So this is the first time we've covered a movie that didn't break number one on its opening weekend it opened at number three with 11 million dollars because it opened up against the lion king 3d which like yeah that was certainly i remember seeing the lion king in 3d when they re-released that and uh honestly that was that was really one of like uh, uh one of the best like group theater experiences I had not only just seeing the movie again on, on the big screen and in 3d, which 3d was the biggest thing at that point. But like after every song, everyone was clapping and it it really just felt like a big party. And I was really happy uh, being there for that. Did you see the lion King in 3d? I did not see it
1: in 3d. I am super anti 3d because it's never done well Like i get it especially during this period post avatar where everybody's like yeah 3d 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 like we're at the point where they're doing like 4d with the moving seats and the 5d with like the the sounds and trying uh, the smells and mm-hmm. like the and like the waterworks yeah. and shit like a like a disney theme park thing but like i'm just not about it man just get me normal 2d
0: in some good seats yeah i'm fine i i I certainly don't blame you for that especially with like the route that 3d has gone nowadays but i also feel like not only just like the hype of the 3d craze at this point but i feel like a movie like the lion king a 2d animated movie where like a lot of the 3d was focused on like the depth of field and stuff i feel like it was used to good effect in that instance so i was like glad to do uh to be there for that and also it was like the first one of this like roll out like they did beauty and the beast 3d yeah. and then they did finding nemo and monsters inc in 3d and then eventually like disney just like they backed off of that after 3d very much became a fad like within a year so yeah yeah this is also a fan of menace 3d like yeah they did trying to yeah. do whatever they can to like capitalize on the 3d craze uh uh, yeah, so the rest of the movies uh, on this box office week, Contagion was number two, uh, the most like, relevant movie of it, our lifetime for the past two years. <laughs> yeah, speaking of timely. I did not at all attempt to watch Contagion again uh, during, you know, the the, the the last year and a half. Uh, I didn't have it in me. And then I also did. opened against. I, oh, you did? Did it really? Did I it did. Yeah.
1: I mean, early pandemic, it was like, you know what? It's like I didn't know the extent of what would happen for the next eighteen months, to be fair. But it was like the first month of the pandemic, it's like, oh, I'm at home. This is kind of like, you know, meta. If I watch this, I'm gonna watch it. And like it's a it's a good movie. It's like a decent movie.
0: Yeah, decent thriller. it's got like, you know, certainly a a, a type of movie, like like a lot of like yeah, these like health outbreak type of movies, like, you know, you don't really get a lot of them at uh, at this point. And I feel like that was also like a thing that really 10 years ago preyed on a lot of like the fears of people. Like what if there's a big virus outbreak and like we all end up dying or something like that. Like that was a very, a little too real of a fear that would end up coming to fruition uh, just a short decade later. Uh, But it also, it opened up against the straw dogs remake, which I did not see Uh, that movie opened at number five with $5 million. And I don't know how she does it at number six with $4 million. It was, I guess some, Sarah Jessica Parker romantic comedy that nobody cares about but <laughs> moving on the budget of this movie was 15 million dollars and its total uh domestic gross for North America was 35 million and ultimately becomes the 91th <laughs> highest grossing movie uh domestically in 2011 uh its total worldwide gross ended up being 76 million dollars uh, according to box office mojo going to Wikipedia and you'll say that the worldwide Hall was 81.4 i don't really know which one to trust on that end but like somewhere within the 76 to 81 million dollar range which for a movie that only costs like 35 million dollars and they don't have that much to recoup on like you know back-end expenses so they ended up probably doing all right as far as like overall profits are concerned for this movie
1: yeah for sure and also it's one of those movies where your uh, it, it doesn't have too much marketing that it needs to do in terms of like it's not doing like national campaigns on tv kind of deal so like i think you know yeah. doubling your return you know 76 or 81 is pretty good for a small indie movie right
0: yeah no it it was a um it was certainly a movie that was like like built up by word of mouth like that was kind of like where the the, the marketing push for the movie ended up lying on is just like people seeing it and like telling people how good it was and that driving, you know, the, the, you know, the traffic towards the movie. Um, yeah. Now let's move on to, so let's see how, how audience and critics reception ended up being for this movie. And I can't believe this is the first time I ever thought like, you know what? I should include what the cinema score rating is because cinema score ends up, especially for movies like this that are kind of divisive and slow, they have really interesting uh, audience ratings on uh, on Cinema Score. Some of them become infamous, but you see this nowadays a lot with A twenty four movies and stuff like that. That are things that are very slow paced, but released to a wide audience, and people see it and are disappointed because of how slow and like uneventful a lot of the movies end up being. This movie ends up getting a C minus score on Cinema Score, and I feel like this is almost kind of like the prototype of like what like A twenty four because A twenty four was not around during uh this this time so like this style of like kind of slow paced contemplative like stylistic type of filmmaking i feel like a lot of people were not used to it at the time and i still feel like people aren't used to it nowadays like every time a new 824 movie comes out and it gets like a low cinema score rating i'm like you you, you'd think people would catch on at this point and know what to expect but uh they don't
1: it's one of those things where it's um If this had come out in 2021, if Drive did, it would definitely probably be an A24 uh, production because they're like at the forefront of that. Obviously, you've seen the appeal that they have with the film Twitter Letterbox community, like the Mm A24 fan hive, if you will. I think it's definitely part of that. But in terms of the cinema score, it's always hilarious to look at the cinema score because cinema score, it's like how do you give this a movie a C minus? And I think it speaks to like that split between there's always like this us versus them mentality. It's like, you guys are like nerds or film nerds, like film critics. You guys are pretentious assholes, you know, in your ivory towers, you know, you guys look down on our Marvel movies and our fucking superhero movies because they're fun and you're a douche and you only like show like slow shit, but that's not what it is, but that's how they perceive it
0: hmm. Yeah, no. And I think that this is certainly one of those uh, instances in which like and I feel like the way that cinema score is also often dictated is like uh, ba- based on like living up to expectations, like if people because that's why a lot of the Marvel movies and like a lot of very like highly uh accessible mainstream movies get like very high A's, A plus ratings on cinema scores because it's like people know what to expect with them. And if they're given what they're come to expect, then they're satisfied. But in an instance in which they're given a better product overall critically, but it was something slightly off from what the type of movie they were expecting there. The immediate reaction is disappointment. And then that ends up reflecting what the cinema score uh, view is, which is why it's not always like a useful tool to gauge how good a movie is. But I think that for the purposes of something like this, where it's like gauging like audience reaction in comparison to like, overall quality and like critic reaction i think it's it, it is kind of an interesting uh tool
1: yeah for sure i also think well i actually have a question for you because i'm not american so obviously i have no contribution to the cinema score but have you ever walked out of a movie where they asked you to give a letter grade like how do they come about that like
0: yeah i don't i, I don't know where they come up with these there was one time i think um about a two two or- Two years ago or something, I went to I was I was seeing Gloria Bell at like my local indie theater. And at the end of the movie, uh, there were people with like tables and they had they gave me like a little sheet of paper and asked me to fill some stuff out. I don't know if they were from CinemaScore or what organization they were representing, but they did ask me like, what was your overall like, how did you react to the movie? What would you grade it? uh what were the things you liked about it and like they had like little check boxes like check off the stuff that you liked about it and like the stuff the reason why you came to the movie um i had a i and now that i'm thinking about it i had a couple of those i remember uh i saw sucker punch <laughs> this same year 2011 and i was i was given like a sheet after the movie and asked to fill stuff out um i don't know if that ends up reflecting the uh with the grade i don't know again i don't know if that's if these are all the same organization but i do remember in very very short like you know like dispersed instances of being asked to like fill out some sort of evaluation after a movie okay cool cool yeah.
1: because the only time that i've done that or had something similar is with like early cuts of movies where they're doing like screen testing things but i've never had it with the actual theatrical release where it's like you come out and they're like you know what did you think of what you just saw kind of deal so interesting yeah. <laughs>
0: Mhm. All right, so let's move on to the Rotten Tomatoes score. This movie scored a 93% uh on Rotten Tomatoes with critics, uh 248 fresh reviews and only 20 rotten. The critics consensus reads with its hyper-stylized blend of violence, music and striking imagery, Drive represents a fully realized vision of art house action. And I think that this is a pretty apt description of the movie. Would you say so?
1: Yeah, I think so for sure. I've seen some pretty bad ones on Rotten Tomatoes in terms of what the critic consensus comes out to. But this one, this one's pretty good. I think it hits on the violence aspect for sure, which is a huge part of the movie that is undersold in the marketing, how absolutely gory it is.
0: And I, if you're not prepared yeah. for that, then that kind of hits you. Yeah, the violence is, is, again, it's very few and far between, but when it hits, like it does kind of take you off guard. Like You're not expecting it to be as vicious as it is. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Metacritic score, uh 78 out of 100. Again, Metacritic is not based on percentage, but just like average rating. So 78 out of 100, 38 positive reviews, five mixed and zero negative, which I was uh, surprised by. Uh and the highest rated review, there were a lot of 100s on Metacritic. So I had to end up picking from like a select few and I ended up going with this one to highlight. Uh this one is from Anne Hornaday from the Washington Post, a 100 out of 100 review, low key, sleek and sophisticated drive provides the visceral pleasures of pulp without sacrificing art. It's cool and smart. Some critics might even call it European. And this is kind, this is a, a slight subtle reference to the, the the line that Albert Brooks has in the movie when he's talking about, like, he's like, I need some action films. Now, some some critics call them European. I thought they were shit. <laughs> but uh but you know it's but it does this line also does kind of highlight like that kind of like exotic art house appeal to the movie of like this like european aesthetic that like americans are not used to and like combining it with like what we would consider like a conventional american action movie
1: yeah i think again i think this if you're a huge fan of the movie which a lot of people are it it definitely hits on those things like every you think it's cool and like it has its unique style that sets itself apart right which i think is the main takeaway from people who really like it and that's why they put it so highly compared to some other action movies or like you know similar type movies of the same ilk is because of that style and that soundtrack like that popping synth vibe and the uh you know 80s retro aesthetic
0: Yep. And then uh, for the worst review that we have, uh, we have from David Edelston of Vulture, a 40 out of 100. Again, not not the lowest we can go, but a 40 out of 100. Every bit as dumb as August's Conan the Barbarian, but a wash in neon lit nightscapes and existential dread with killings so graphic that you can't entirely believe what you're gagging at. Um, I feel like this is one where it's like I can understand, like, this is where, like, I guess the the. The opinion of like this movie is just kind of vapid and like it uses its like neon aesthetic and style to like cover up for like very little substance and i don't agree with that i can understand if someone would feel that way um but come on i'm comparing it to the code of the barbarian remake from 2011 it's like (laughs) yeah that's kind of extreme especially because like i feel
1: like you especially for a critic who's seen as many movies as edelstein has right he's uh, you gotta appreciate when a movie takes chances, especially in this era where there's fewer and fewer movies that take shots and have that level of ambition. I feel like you gotta give credit for its ambition, yeah. even if it doesn't hit on that level of ambition. In your opinion, you know? yeah,
0: I feel like that's the, where the score reflects that. Like again, a forty, you, there's room for like you know giving like credit where credit is due in that aspect. So I feel like that, again, this isn't like a 10 or a zero review or anything like that. It's it's like almost halfway. So it's like, that was, again, if that's the worst that we could find for this movie, it's like, yeah, pretty well acclaimed uh, otherwise. And let's move into the post-release, the, market, the awards campaigning. So this movie only ended up nabbing one Oscar nomination for best sound editing, which I feel like, for as much as my opinion of Nicholas Winning Reffin has soured in the years past, I really do feel like this could have been like a, a, a picture contender. I could have believed Nicholas Winning Reffin as a best director nominee. I think people were pushing hard for Albert Brooks as a uh, supporting actor and like even stuff like editing and cinematography that I feel like it, it could have ended up getting, but just kind of, uh, it, I guess it, it was not as widely beloved as it was in like a lot of the other smaller uh, circles.
1: I think nowadays if it was released nowadays given the influx of social media and how big it's gotten to it would have had a bigger push in that time just because of word of mouth gets spread so much faster now with Twitter and Letterboxd and things being extremely prominent and along those lines but for what it got in regards to like the sound editing and the campaigns that it did go for it makes sense all of it checks out.
0: Yeah. And it's like it's certainly a movie that I think that like it did come out a little it it was a little bit before its time. Like, I feel like nowadays, like I feel like in in the wake of movies like, say, Joker and even stuff like, you know, Parasite, not to compare Joker and Parasite together. But like these movies that are like, you know, they're a little bit more like gritty and like they a, a little bit more stylistic. I feel like they're the the Oscars has opened up. At a point where like they're more open towards a movie like that, or this movie could have gone the other way. It could have been like the uncut gems of that of uh, of that year. And it still would have probably gone nowhere. But yeah, who knows how much things have probably changed since this movie came out as far as like, you know, awards campaigning is concerned. Uh, As far as other award nomination bodies, like in the prelude to the Oscars. It did pretty well at BAFTA. It was nominated for best film directors and supporting actress for Carrie Mulligan and best editing. That that one is as a surprising pinpoint there. I wouldn't have expected, but like again, she's she's good in the movie.
1: I mean, she's solid, but like you said earlier, she doesn't have much to do. It's like, it's no knock on Carrie Mulligan, who I think is a great actress. It's just she's not given much to do besides, you know, stand there and be the object of affection for these two men that are after her and then be the object that the driver then has to protect, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you can only do as much as with the ingredients that you're given.
0: Yeah. Uh, Indie Spirit, this movie pretty much again. I don't think there's a big win for this movie anywhere. It nominated for Best Feature Director, Ryan Gosling for male lead and supporting actor for Albert Brooks. Uh, Golden Globes nominated a supporting actor, Albert Brooks. And then, of course, the most important uh, film awards body, the MTV Movie Awards, which, again, I I have to I think that I'm going to have to make this like a staple to the show. Like, I got to go through what the MTV Movie Awards, because not even just like the stuff that they award, but like some of these categories like, okay, Ryan Gosling nominated for Best Lead Actor. And then Ryan Gosling also nominated for Best Gun Wrenching Performance. And it's like, one, what does that mean? And also, why? What? What makes it different from like? What makes it different from just regular best actor? I don't know. Uh, I want to look at you know what while I have some time. Let me look at the other best gut wrenching performances from this that's, year because that's exactly what I'm looking up right now. Again, I was, the MTV Movie Awards they yeah. have like these these categories that like they they stick for maybe like a year or two, but like they never end up like you know becoming a staple. So the other nominees in the category of best gut-wrenching performance in 2011 (laughs) we was uh we have tom cruise in mission impossible ghost protocol again not what what kind of gut-wrenching deep acting is he doing in that movie other than like you know the the looks of fear when he's climbing that building i guess and then we got jonah hill and rob Riggle for 21 jump street again what is the qualification for this category it is a comedy movie (laughs) Are they talking about the scene when he gets his dick shot off? That was like a no, wrenching moment. No, it, it's literally,
1: it says
0: shoot in the genitals is what it says. I'll, on, uh, I'll say they do have the qualifications for why they're there.
1: Yeah. So for the Tom Cruise one, it's climbing the uh, Burj Khalifa. So the building. Oh, yeah. 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 And then as I, as yeah. I suspected. Yeah. So the other ones. Are uh, from Bryce House Howard in *The Help* for eating the uh, uh, made, yes. of, uh, made of uh, things without made of, spoiling. Made of uh,
0: made of poopy. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, so what was *Drive* nominated? Why was *Drive* nominated?
1: <laughs> *Drive* was nominated. Wait, wait. On this list, I don't have *Drive* on here.
0: Oh, okay. Well, anyway, the winners was the cast of *Bridesmaids* for the scene where they all shit in the sink. Wonderful category there. Anyway, so we talked about some of the other like the influence that Drive had on like 2010s movies, and you could see it clearly in movies like The Guest and Nightcrawler, Lost River, which was also, uh, which again was directed by Ryan Gosling uh, <laughs> specifically. But yeah, any other movies that you could think of that like kind of ape this aesthetic? Aesthetic wise, maybe less
1: so, but I I think in terms of taking like the 80s neon stuff like stranger things does that obviously Mm -hmm. to an extent and like even blade runner does that but like that kind of all that stuff is because of the more era rather than specifically drive as for drive itself i would say like like i mentioned before baby driver i feel like takes Mm -hmm. elements
0: of it for sure yeah, there's also movies that like came before Drive that you could point very clear lines of like it being influenced by. Like there's movies like La Samurai, which is an excellent movie from 1967. Again, very stoic protagonist, but like very stylistically cool. And I think we often mentioned that movie specifically. You could also point to movies like Bullet, like a lot of Steve McQueen movies that had influence on this. So, and then it also specifically name dropped by the creative team of of the video game Hotline Miami because that game is one that also has like a very highly neon 80s aesthetic like the game is like an 8-bit overhead twin stick shooter where you play as like you know a, a stoic protagonist you walk into the place and your job is to like kill as many of the of the henchmen and like the hired guards as quickly and efficiently as possible without getting killed it's a very brutal difficulty like very fast paced, but I can certainly see like where the influence came from. Have you ever played this game before?
1: I've seen people play it. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And it definitely makes sense uh, why it is that way. Uh, I can see the influence for sure, especially in the the violence, like the, the level of violence in that particular game as well.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah there's there's a lot of blood splatters uh it's it's short and it's simplistic and i like that game a lot the sequel is a, a little less so it gets a little bit too convoluted with like its meta narrative and like the different gameplay styles that it keeps throwing at you throughout the game like the second one's a bit of a mess but the first game has a very good streamlined like experience like if you're looking for like a very like no nonsense brutal difficulty but like rewarding in that way hotline miami a very good game and we already talked about drive like its reputation in years since of like becoming like a quintessential like film bro type of movie and i I would feel like of the movies that get like thrown into that category like the reason why a lot of those movies can be seen as problematic is because like the, the people who latch onto the movies like end up identifying with like the more problematic elements of it or like a problematic character like Tyler Durden, like yeah. Patrick Bateman or Alex from Clockwork Orange. But I feel like, I don't think there's like a, a bad, like a, an evil interpretation that someone could uh, latch onto and drive because again, it's, it's a pretty straightforward, like good guy versus bad guy type of movie. It's not really playing with a lot of those more like m- morally complex angles or anything like that. Like, it's violent, but like I think that's about the extent of it though.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't think he, you can put him in the same vein as some of the names that you mentioned before, like Tyler Durden, like Patrick Bateman, or anything like that, because he's not morally evil, like, right? He's hey. just doing things because he's put in that position. And it's sort of like that anti hero vibe, which was popular around that time with like going back to Cranston, uh, you know, like that Brian Cranston thing, right? Where mm. it's like, at least when he started out on that show, the character was like he's just trying to do right by his family, right? And he yeah. gets mixed up in this world. And similar then, to, yeah,
0: yeah, and then as the show goes on, it, he becomes a lot more selfish and like you know, you know, more opportunistic for his own uh, doings, which again not really a thing that this movie uh, tackles, but uh, aside from that, yeah. So the movie. Then was released on Blu-ray on January thirty-first of twenty twelve, and this is the thing that I wanted to do because, like, a thing that me and Anthony used to like to do is like we watch like the VHS openings of like movies, like what trailers were attached to certain movies. And so I I looked at the what's attached to the trailers on the Blu-ray of this movie, and it's like, man, try to try to even remember what any of these movies are. I mean, there's one like very significant one, but like some of these movies, like, okay, so the Rum Diary starring. Johnny Depp, I guess him trying to do Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas again where he's like a that drunk was, writer. I never saw it.
1: I, I saw it, but for the wrong reasons.
0: Was that a movie that lied to you? Did you feel be, uh, betrayed no, by, no, by that no. movie?
1: The, the only reason I saw that movie is because they told me that, and this is embarrassing to even say, but this was 10 years ago when I was mm-hmm. a child, but they told me that Amber Heard was going to be nude in that movie.
0: Oh, and oh, and, and now... Thinking about oh the last thing I want to watch right now is a movie with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard together. Exactly,
1: exactly. Which now, given current events, is like oh, not obviously not as dope. But like, I think that kickstarted that whole relationship.
0: Yeah. Um. The next next movie. Tell me if you know what any of this shit is. I I, these are the trailers. This movie called London Boulevard. It was like Colin Farrell and like some sort of like gangster crime movie it looked very generic and then a movie I, called yeah yeah you ever heard of this
1: never heard of that one yeah no. and then
0: there's a movie called meeting evil where i think it was this was it was luke wilson and samuel L. jackson and like luke wilson was like i don't know it's some sort of crime movie i guess but it was not a uh yeah it, I, I forgot most of it um and then there's in the land of blood and honey which was uh i believe the directorial debut of angelina jolie um i know i guess a couple people have seen it i never saw it um, but it's at least a title I remember. <laughs> uh,
1: I, I know that the one of them on this list is Take Shelter, which is actually a really good movie,
0: yeah. that's maybe the maybe. one where it's like if there's any movie here that's survived, at least it's it's this one. it's a it's a really good movie. Um, Michael Shannon uh, is great in it. Um, Jessica it's a really casting. yep, yeah, no, it's a it's a really good Jeff Nichols directed movie again he's he's someone who i feel like has has kind of fallen off in late in recent years but like you know he was he was one of the up and comers back then um and then i i I looked at some of the uh the bonus features for this movie and a lot of them are very kind of generic uh just like typical studio release bonus features uh there's a uh there's a feature called I Drive. It's like a five minute short rundown of like drivers character traits. And it's not really that interesting. Uh there's one called Under the Hood, which is like a cast and crew interviews and stuff. And the only thing I really found interesting about this was that it was revealed that like the Carrie Mulligan character was originally intended to be a Latina woman. And I think that's who that character is in the book. And I think that the yeah. whole cause the whole family, cause like her son is that, and then Oscar Isaac. Um and I feel like this is the reason why I'm like I'm done with Nicholas Winning Ruffin. Like, I don't want to hear what he has to say anymore because it's like, I actually, I'll, I'll defend the decision to make to Carrie Mulligan the character in this movie because I feel like if the entire family was Latina, I feel like then was or Latino, I feel like it would just, it would create like a bit of a white savior narrative that I don't really, that I think that the movie didn't really need. Having the family be like a mixed race, I think, kind of mitigates that. But when Nicholas Winning Ruffin was talking about like. Oh, you know, I inter I interviewed so many of these uh these Latina actresses and like, you know, they were some of them were, were great. Like, you know, I love Latina women. I think they're beautiful. And it's like, Jesus, dude, stop talking. And it's like yeah. but he's like, Yeah, he's like, Yeah, but none of them like I, I didn't none of them like really spoke to me like Harry Mulligan. Like I didn't want I didn't fall in love with them like I did with her. And it's like, Oh, really? I don't wanna ask why that is that all these qualified Latina actresses weren't good enough. But Carrie Mulligan was for some reason. But let's, 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 yeah, let's not dig into that, I guess. And then there's the uh, one called The Driver and Irene. It's just a look at the relationship between Driver and Irene. It's six minutes. Who cares? And then there's one called Cut to the Chase, which is just about like the car chases of the movie. Again, nothing really spectacular about it. It just kind of like basically just recounts what happens in the movie to you. And then it's just like on set shots of them doing it. Not really interesting. Uh, The only like significant bonus feature on this is a feature called the drive drive without a driver An interview with Nicholas Winding Refn, And it's like 25 minutes long and it's literally just, it's just like a straight on head to head, just like Nicholas Winding Refn interview. He gets, he, he's a, a bit of like an indulgent, pretentious kind of prick. And, I, I, and it's not even like he's a bad person. Like he doesn't like, but it's like, again, like all these just kind of like stupid things that he says and like just how seriously he takes himself. I'm like, this guy is insufferable. Yeah.
1: As we've learned previously from the uh, William Friedkin (laughs) uh, clip.
0: So, yeah, so this movie currently is streaming uh, on Peacock. You could watch it free with ads, or if you have like the paid subscription, it's available to watch there. Um, So, let's close this out. A little went on a little longer than I expected, but uh, we did get a lot of meaty conversation about it. Uh, Let's go. Rating out of 10 for uh, Drive as a movie. I am going to say that this movie. It was a. It was probably one of those ten out of ten movies for a, a good portion of my life, especially for like the first couple times I watched it. As I've grown older now, I feel like a lot of like that aura, that like intri- intriguing mystique of the movie. It's a little. It it doesn't really hold that same effect anymore. Like it's nowhere near as like deep or like artsy or weird as like you would think of it when you're watching it as like a seventeen year old like I was, mm-hmm. but it's certainly like a very competent well put together beautiful looking it stylistically musically a great movie again it's no it's not it's not like you know the defining movie of this generation as much as like you know people treat it as it is but i think that it's certainly a worthy movie. And I would certainly say that it's one of my top five movies of 2011.
1: For me, I, I think I'm in the pretty much the exact same boat as you. When I first saw it in like 2012 or whatever, much, much higher on it than I am now, uh, like close to 10 years removed from having seen it for the first time for a lot of the same reason, because I don't think it's as effective as I thought it was originally at doing some of the things and leaning into that aesthetic as i originally thought it was more to that i think that because of the emergence of like a24 and like these like really trippy interesting uh tight indie movies that are ambitious right you kind of feel that there's higher levels of ambition if you will in these more recent movies but again that might be the case that when i look back on them In five or six years, too, right? Because Mm -hmm. things just progress and I mature as well as a viewer of movies. But yeah, it's definitely gone down for me on the scale from that like nine out of 10 range back to like a seven and a half, eight range now. So that's where I would put it as a movie for a lot of the same reasons you mentioned.
0: All right. And further marketing the movie how do we feel like this movie was marketed how accurately do we feel like it was marketed i'm gonna go the marketing of this movie a a significantly lower than my rating for the movie overall because i think we we went over how even though i don't think it's as misleading as uh miss Deming uh, believed it to be to the (laughs) point where i'm gonna sue the movie over it but like in watching that first trailer it is kind of like It gives away a lot of like the big action beats. It kind of just like gives away a lot of the story elements and the trailers themselves. Like they're they they miss the mark of like what the appeal of the movie really is. Like they try to streamline it as being like, you know, uh, like a typical Hollywood action movie. And it like it doesn't play up on like the more interesting stylistic qualities of the movie. And I feel like that's where a lot of people were misled or people might have been turned off if that's not what they wanted. So I feel like the the marketing for this movie, I'm giving it a three out of 10. I think it's like the trailer, it, it didn't really, even for people who like the movie, it doesn't do a good job at selling what the good things about the movie are. And as far as like other supplemental things about the marketing, there's really not much there. Like this wasn't like, you know, a highly m- marketed accessible movie. Like there's not much that like you can go back to or take away from like how marketed. I think it was just kind of, There's not much, yeah, even trying to find stuff for this episode, aside from like, you know, that big court case, there wasn't really anything like there was only like the main theatrical trailer, maybe like one or two TV spots, but there's not really a lot to go off of.
1: For me, I think the marketing, most of the heavy duty marketing for this movie, I think comes from word of mouth, which is obviously not something that the uh, studio can necessarily promote or engage with it's more so like it slowly gained a sort of cult following in terms of like people saw it and then it like whether it be like film bros or whatever started spreading it around and being like yo you got to check out drive because it does this and it's so awesome and so cool or whatever right so i feel like that's where the bulk of the marketing comes from in terms of the things that it did in terms of actual marketing like we talked about earlier i don't think the posters are that great actually i like more of the fan stuff that was put out more than the actual posters themselves like the trailer as you mentioned isn't great either the way that it's cut and the way that it just gives away major major plot points that are way better as a surprise and i think that if anything if i can give it anything for props i think the soundtrack is really good it's like one of those things where if I could find it on vinyl, I would buy it on vinyl up here in Canada for sure. Because I think the, the soundtrack slaps too, yeah. right? So that, that's one of those things. But overall, I would give it like a four out of 10 in terms of a grade.
0: Yeah. But yeah, I think like that goes to show that there's a healthy, like you can have like a, a bad marketing campaign and even a marketing campaign that isn't representative of the movie you're about to see, but that's still means that that still doesn't mean that it can't be a really good movie so that's that's my that's our episode on drive it's one that i i didn't think we would get a lot out of it i thought there was really just like one big story to cover and there wouldn't be a lot much else there but we really did get a lot out of it and i'm i'm gonna thank nate again for joining me for this episode oh buddy i'm always
1: happy to hop on and talk about movies with you man Um, it's a good time good time
0: of course. So give some plugs, sign-offs. So where can people find you? And what, what are some interesting things that you're going to have going on in the next couple of weeks?
1: All right. Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at Nate the Cyborg. I believe that's the same on Letterboxd as well. The big thing for me and for us over at Before Cyborgs, other than our big site revamp and relaunch and giving us a whole new look, is... I will be going to Toronto International Film Festival this week or by the time this episode comes out, I will be at the festival. So I will be providing coverage from there, which unfortunately does not include Clifford the Big Red Dog. But, you know, we'll live it. Yeah, we'll 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 have to do with, you know, Dune and Last Night in Soho, which let's be honest, are not going to reach. Yeah, are not going to reach that pinnacle of Clifford the Big Red Dog. But, you know, what (laughs) can you do? But. Yeah. yeah. Stay on the lookout for that for me. All right.
0: All right. And you can find me, uh, my personal, uh, Twitter. I'm on, uh, RMR cyborg Mike on Twitter and Instagram and on before this and, uh, I'm the cyborgs.com. Hopefully I will be making a return. I we're once the site revamps, there might be, there's some movies. We're going to have some press screenings. I hope to come back for some point soon. Um, on for the, as far as this site, uh, cinema marketing pod, on Twitter and Cinemarketing Marketing Podcast on Instagram. Remember, Instagram is where you can see a lot of the visual stuff that you don't get from the audio. You could keep up with some of the stuff that we're po- they're talking about in this episode. You can see that on Instagram if you go to the, uh, our Instagram stories. Oh, and also let me let me uh, let me plug Random Ruby Roulette uh, because that's my other podcast that I do with uh, my good friends Lewis and Jack. Um, our last episode we had Anthony on. We did. Howard the Duck. It was a bad time for everyone, but hopefully we we had uh, made a fun episode to listen to. And our next episode will be on uh, the 2008 Wachowski's Speed Racer uh, as chosen by Lewis. Uh, another movie about driving, uh, which I've never seen, but hopefully uh, we can have some fun with that. And for our next episode, uh, I gave it away a little bit before that, uh, One of my co-hosts, Jack specifically, is joining me for uh, a movie that he he has been more excited about than any movie for the past two years, and hopefully it's finally going to come out. And in order to celebrate that, we're going to be looking at one of uh, the movies that is a part of this franchise. And we're going to take you out with a teaser for that movie. So thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.
1: Country. England. Gun, shot, agent, provocateur, murder, employment, skyfall,
0: skyfall, done.